Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. To the investigators out there, he names the street, but no, most importantly also, or just as important, is the fact that he's saying this man... Trayvon Martin is circling his car, so he's in such dire strain or so fear that he gets out of the car to go follow him. So he's either truthful in saying he's circling the car, or he's lying about it. Either way, it shows that he's not telling the truth. Because if he's really that in fear of, why does he get out of the car? Or is he saying that as another explanation as to why maybe he had to kind of confront him? as to explain that maybe, oh, it was the victim that attacked him. You see, the victim was already showing uh, that he was going to do something because he started circling the car. And that's what a person that's about to commit a crime does. That's what he wanted the police to believe. find out where he went. And he said, we don't need you to do that. And I said, well, okay. Um, he said, we already have a police officer in route. And I said, oh, all right. And I I had gone where through the dog walk where I normally walk my dog and walked back through to my street, the street that loops around. And he said, we already have a police officer on the way. So I said, okay. I told, they said, would you like a police officer to meet you? And I said, yes. And I told him where my car was and the link in the model. Mm-hmm. So I was walking back through where my car was and he jumped out from the bushes and he said what the fuck's your problem homie and I got my cell phone out to call 911 this mm-hmm. time and I said hey man I don't have a problem and he goes no now you have a problem and he punched me in the nose at that point I felt that okay. so a few key things to remember there or point out that I would suggest to you number one is where he walks his dog but he doesn't know the name of the street in terms of getting, there's only, again, three streets. Number two is he's walking back, even he's told not to follow him, so he decides to obey, even though he wasn't ordered not to follow him, but he decides to go back to the car. When this man came out of the bushes, you will see that he changes that, and he, and he catches himself, but you'll see it, it's coming up, because number one is to where those bushes were, but he also, at some point, catches himself when he says, I was going towards him. Oh, he, he came out. He came towards me. Didn't even see him getting ready to punch me. As soon as he punched me, I fell backwards um, into the grass. This man, Trayvon Martin, this teenager, came at him. Now, he's out there in the darkness, and he's got a gun, but of course he hasn't taken his gun out. That would be illegal. He's got the right to conceal it because he suspects somebody of a crime. He's not a police officer. He can't go arrest them. 
but he's just kind of wandering out there in the darkness, even though this guy has circled his car, but he's not in fear, he's just kind of wandering. Does that make sense? He goes out to the darkness after somebody he's scared of, and he's not on guard to what's going on. See, because he's got to convince the police, and by virtue of giving that statement to the police, convince you, the defense has got to convince you, that he was just kind of walking and the victim came out of nowhere. He's trying to convince the police that he hadn't done anything wrong. And on my nose and on my mouth. And he says, you're going to die tonight. Again, now he's saying that the level of violence towards him is escalating. Because Trayvon Martin just decides to shut him up by, you know, and, and the amazing thing, and I'm going to get this to this in one of the uh, slides that you will see, or PowerPoint presentations you'll see, he must have had like ten hands out there, or ten arms, because he's able to do all this while the, the defendant is just sitting there, letting him put his hands over him, not doing anything. Does that make sense? My jacket and my shirt came up. And when he said, you're going to die tonight, I felt his hand go down on my side. And I thought he was going for my firearm. So I grabbed it immediately. And as he banged my head again, I just pulled out my firearm and shot him. Okay. And then what happened? Dave? So... The gun wasn't exposed earlier. He's getting beat up, but he hasn't taken the gun out. It's only when the victim starts reaching for the gun. Now, he tells Osterman that he actually grabbed the gun or touched it. But he says he's reaching for the gun, and then I realize as he's holding my hand, one hand over my mouth, one hand over my nostril, I can't breathe, but I see it. He's got that, that third hand that he's going for the gun, and the victim only went for the gun because the gun became ex exposed. Runner, with the court's uh, permission, I've had uh, the deputy check it, the gun. Thank you, sir. He's got his gun and his holster. And you'll see in a few minutes, maybe more than a few minutes, one of the things that he does, he demonstrates to the police where he had the gun. And it wasn't right here in the front. It was towards the back and it was hidden. And he'll demonstrate to the police out there where it was. Look at the gun. Look at the size of this gun. How did the victim see that in the darkness? Where was it? It wasn't outside. It was tucked in behind. And he'll demonstrate to the police where it was. How did the victim see this gun? Or is it just another lie that he tells? So I remember I once I shot him, I holstered my firearm and I got on top of him and I held his hands on because he was still talking. And he and uh, I said, Stay down, don't move. And uh, then Our key point in that is that he tells the officers out there, the police station and later out at the scene, that he didn't realize originally that he had shot the victim. Well, if he's in such fear and he hasn't, he doesn't realize he shot him. What the heck is he doing holstering his gun? If he's so scared, or is that just police jargon? That's what police do when they shoot somebody. First, they make sure the person's either dead or handcuffed, and then they automatically holster the gun. But he's got that police jargon talking, and that's what the police are taught. 
But if he's so scared, what is he doing holstering his gun? Because he claims at one point that the victim said, oh, you got me or something, and he thought, oh, he scared him. Because he's trying to convince the police that he really didn't intend to shoot him at that point. That, yeah, he was in fear, but he really wasn't intending to shoot him. He was just trying to kind of scare him, maybe. Recall, it's always dark. They always come around nighttime. And... They always come around at nighttime. They being, pardon my language, the assholes or the fucking punks that are committing these burglaries. Again, going back to that assumption that he made originally when he profiled a 17-year-old boy that had skittles. That's the crime he committed that evening. Skittles that he didn't even steal from 7-Eleven. He legitimately bought. You saw the videotape. He wasn't instilling fear into that clerk over there because he was wearing a hoodie. But somehow, this man right here became suspicious of a 17-year-old kid who's wearing a hoodie at 7 in the evening or 7.10 in the evening. Straight through to see if there was a street sign that I could tell dispatch where I lost sight of him at. And when I walked back, that's when he came out of the darkness, and I guess he was upset that I called the police. Now he's starting to speculate or trying to convince the police, oh, I guess that's why he must have attacked me or why he came out, because he must have been upset that I called the police. See, he's trying to justify to the police why he did what he did. And, of course, it's not that he came to the wrong assumption originally. It's no, I was just checking for the street sign. I was just doing my job as a neighborhood watchman or just a citizen concerned about crime. And I guess he came out of there because he must have realized that I called the police, meaning that first assumption still existing in his mind. He is a criminal, and that's what criminals do. They don't want to get caught. Cell phone away. Okay. And then when I walked back towards him, I, I saw him coming at me. Did you hear that? When I walked back towards him, he switches mid-sentence, I saw him coming towards me. He acknowledges at that point that he is the aggressor. He's the one that's going and pursuing the victim. But he catches himself when he says that, and then he goes, oh, he walked towards me. And I went to grab my phone. I don't remember if I had time to pull it out or not. And he claims that he went to for the phone. See, because he's got to then explain why he, being a 5'7", 204-pound, perfectly healthy 28-year-old man, is overpowered by this 5'11", 158-pound kid. And he, being the one that's tracking him or following him, he's on guard, he's got two flashlights, he's got a gun. This kid is the one that's scared because this guy's following him. He's got to explain why this kid got the upper hand. Oh, I, I was going for my phone, and I just got distracted. Going for his phone, or was he going for a gun? Were they in the same place? Defendant's interview that same day, part two. What did he do there? He drew uh, different areas and he tracks in terms of where he was, where he claims he saw the victim, where the victim just came out of nowhere, where the victim was just kind of looking suspicious, 
And, you know, you've got that in evidence, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that, but he drew the different places where he claims the victim was and what, in his mind, caused him to be suspicious of a 17-year-old boy. Defendants, or photographs taken of the defendant that you saw. Defense made a big deal. Oh, he was washed up. Well, you've got this bloody photograph here, and you've got that, I guess, and according to Dr. DeMayo, I guess one of the uh, EMS people out there just kind of put it back in place, put the nose back in place because you heard from Ms. Falgate. She didn't see anything. She saw it might be fractured. They don't know. What she recommended is go get x-rays. That's how we verify it. Defendant refused or declined to do that. That's his privilege. But they're going to argue to you, oh, he had a broken nose. Well, first of all, who was following who? Who started the, the fight or struggle? I circle this because in reviewing the evidence, I thought this might be interesting to you. And what I'm cir circled up there are his shoes. The defense claims defendant told the police that he was on his back the whole time and the victim was just wailing on him. Well, and you can look at the actual photograph. There's actually some glass on top and it appears wet as if maybe he at some point was on top of the victim. Just a minor point. Kind of corroborates some of the evidence the witness's testimony. Same exhibit 52, the back jacket of the defendant. Wow. Where's all the scrapes, scratch marks? Something to reflect all this tension with this concrete that occurred out there. How come it's missing? Back of his head. You recall the testimony? There was two. How small were they? You recall the testimony of, of the witness, Ms. Fulgate? I think I had her. Tell me how, how, how big it was. And I think she was, I mean, it was hard to keep. Anyway, you remember it. Why are his hands not injured? If this 17-year-old young man is wailing on him, how come he's not defending himself? And again, these are just little parts of the interview that he gave. And you, you obviously heard this, so I just want to take you to take a second to read that. But he talks about these guys. He talks about not knowing these places. Again... He's trying to make up one lie after another after another. Yeah, he was certainly in my car. As soon as I saw him coming, I rolled up the window because I was so scared of him. Because he was a criminal. I didn't know the name of the street that I was on. And then he talks about, you know, they remind him, we didn't need you to do that. I had already gone through the dog walk, told him where my car was, make a model, jumped out of the bushes, hey man, you have a problem, and then punched me and fell to the ground. And then he's wailing on my head. And I yelled for help. He grabbed my head and hit it into the sidewalk. When he started doing that, I slid into the grass still and yelling for help. Help! He's killing me! And then, of course, this criminal put his hands over my mouth and said, you're going to die tonight. And that's what, of course, led me to the garden. He's got that legal training he's aware of in terms of what he's got to say. He, the victim, said, you got me after being shot. And he was still talking. I said, stay down, don't move. I got on top of him. He said, ow, ow. And then he's talking about, that he's telling the people that came out, I don't need you to call the police, I need you to help me with this guy. But he holsters his gun too at the same time. 
It's always dark. You know, they always come out around nighttime. And he talks about still not having seen the victim. We struck in the nose. I screamed help probably 50 times. Anything else important? No. You didn't try to make contact with him? No. Then, you know, you can see the map. You can track down when you look at the timeline in terms of does it match where he's claiming he's at when he's talking. I would submit to you it doesn't. But again, you rely on what the evidence shows. Came out of the bushes. I don't recall if he came from the front or behind. He punched me in the face and I fell backwards. When I, back, when I walked back towards him, I saw him coming at me. He catches himself at mid-sentence. That is the truth. When I walked back toward him, meaning I was going towards where he was, and he goes, oh, no, he was coming at me. And that written statement he gave to the police, my purpose in showing you this is, he now refers to the suspect. Not, pardon my language, effing punk or asshole. Now he's the police term for a criminal that they haven't arrested a suspect. He's got that down pat. Suspect over and over. Trying to impress the police like he knows the stuff. Hey, you know, I want to be a police officer one day. Suspect this, suspect that, suspect that. Fired one shot into his torso. You know, he's got all the language down. To Detective Investigator Serena followed, lost side, had flashlight, but it was dead. You got a problem? No, you've got a problem now. And all of a sudden, he beat him. Started beating him. Smothered by mouse and nose. Felt him slide his hand down. You're going to die tonight, MF. You got me. I spread his hands away from the body. Still talking, but I don't remember what he said. Let's talk about... There's been a history of uh, break-ins in that building, and I called previously about this house. Right. When the police arrived at this house, when I called the first time, the windows were open and the door was unlocked. And the police came to security. So I said, you know what? I, it's better to just call and okay. I kept driving. I passed him and he was he kept staring at me and staring around, looking around uh -huh. to see who else was I don't know why he was looking at me. Did he walk off from there or did he stop there last night? He stopped and he 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 like looked around and that's why I was This is what he claims this criminal is doing. Where was he standing at when you Boy, that's a crime at RTL on Sunday night, February 26th. Standing out there in the grass. Okay, and I went to the clubhouse. Direction is he going? And I said, I don't know. I lost because he cut down here and made a right. 
Yes, but the twin tree is green. Did you catch that? Did you catch him in one lie right there? He originally told the police over and over, before and even after this interview, he didn't know the name of the street. And then when they just kind of let him talk, he gives the name right there. I mean, it's common sense. There's only three streets, and he's lived there four years. Again, why did he have to lie about that? Because he does not want to admit that he was following this innocent young boy. The 17-year-old boy. He made a right in there, and they said, well, what direction did he go? And I said, I don't know, I can't see him. And they said, can you get to somewhere where you can see him? And I said, yeah, I, I can. So I backed out.
Jezebel. And I looked around and I didn't see anybody. And I told non-American guys, you know what, he's gone. He's not even here. So I still thought I could use their address, so I walked all the way through. I actually walked all the way to the street, and I was going to give them this address, and they said, well, if he's not there, do you still want a police officer? And I said, yes. And They said, you still want a police officer? And I said, yes. And they said, are you following him? Oh, I'm sorry, back there. They said, are you following him? And I said, yes, we followed you know, in the area. And they said, he's only following him because he happens to be in the area. We don't need you to do that. And I said, okay. So I, that's when I walked straight through here to get the address so that I could meet the police officer. And then they said, uh, I said, he's not here. They said, I passed here, I looked, I didn't see anything again, and I was walking back to my truck, and then when I got to right about here, he yelled from behind me, me. he said, yo, you got a problem? And I turned around, and I said, no, I don't have a problem, man. Where was he at? He was about there, but he was walking towards me. Yes, sir. I believe, like I said, I was already past that, so I didn't see exactly where he came from, but he was about where you were. And I said, no, I don't have a problem. And I went to go grab my cell phone, but my, I left it in a different pocket. I went, I looked down in my pants pocket, and he said, you got a problem now. And then he was here, and he punched me in the face. Right here? Right around here. To be honest, I don't remember exactly. Me down, somehow he got on top of me. Grass or on the it was oh, more over. I think I was trying to push him away from me, and then he got on top of me somewhere around here. And that was when I started screaming for help. I started screaming, Help, help, as loud as I could. Notice what's right here. One of those uh, sprinkler boxes thing. Could that have caused some of the injury? And that's when I started screaming for help. I started screaming help up as loud as I could. And Did you see where he's grabbing? Where he's got his firearm? My jacket moved up and he saw it. I feel like he saw it. He looked at it and he said, You're going to die tonight, motherfucker. And he reached for it. He reached like I felt his arm going down to my side. And I grabbed it and I just grabbed my firearm. One of his other versions is that he actually grabbed the victim's arm and removed the arm so he would have a better shot. Again, he's able to do all this 
I guess the victim has two or three hands or arms. See if that all makes sense, what he's describing. taken by Mr. Manalo again lying about that because he's trying to justify to the police that he was searching because of course the victim had to have something in his hand meaning some kind of weapon that would have caused him to resort to the shooting him fell into him when he hasn't been shot. And again, this is just in written form, some of the stuff you already heard, just to kind of remind you of some important stuff. You've also got it, I'm not going to play it for you, but you got a car clubhouse video. It's very short. There's uh, clips of it. By coincidence, it appears that there's a vehicle going in it. You might even see a person. Not that you see a full figure. That's just impressions or shadows. But you definitely see a car around the area where? Where the mailboxes are. By coincidence, what Rachel Gentile told you all in terms of where the victim was describing he was, he was. Under that shaded part when it was raining, he was in the mailbox. When he described a defendant looking at him. He kept yelling, that is, he claims the victim kept yelling. Of course, nobody else heard this, but he told the police it happened. Did Mr. Good say anything about when he came out that he heard the victim say, or the person on top say, part of my language, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker? And look where he's reenacting it when you watch the video. Why did I think it was important for you to hear again? 
because he, in terms of wanting to be a police officer, he wants to know what she was doing to safeguard the firearm when somebody's around. Again, he's trying to talk that police jargon. He's also trying to be impressive, impress these police officers. Like, yeah, I'm one of you all. You know, I, I can understand police officers and all that stuff. I've got a criminal justice stuff. You know, you know how it is. You just kind of come into contact with people, and you know, sometimes somebody attacked you and all that. Trying to befriend them, but he's talking that police jargon. He's curious as to how you do that. The other thing that's important, and you've seen it by the photographs and also by the uh, videos that you've seen, you saw how he was. Because I think Mr. Pollock said, oh, he was this overweight person and all that. Okay, he's a little overweight. Technically, he's two, 204, I believe, 5'7". But he's, he's fit there when you see him walking around. Because you might contrast that in terms of, you know, if you see him now in terms of his big, he, he was pretty fit then. So compare how he appeared then, and most importantly, compare how Trayvon Martin appeared, DME photographs. Are you going to go ahead and actually ask this person what he was doing out there? No, sir. Very basic question. You didn't bother to ask. This guy was suspicious what he's doing, circling the car. You didn't even ask him what he's doing? No, sir. He's a criminal. You don't have to ask criminals what you know what they're doing. Point, you've had two opportunities to identify yourself as somebody who was actually not meant to do harm. Problem being that both of in his mind's eye, which I can't get into because he's passed, that he perceives you as a threat. Okay? He perceives you as a threat. He has every right to go and defend himself, especially when he wishes to get pocket to grab a cell phone. Okay? Very insightful question by investigator Serena, like you're reaching for your pocket and if you, you know, like, gun? Then he's scared of him. He's scared of this person that he's following all over in the darkness out there. But of course, he doesn't have his gun out, nor does he feel a need to. Because, but he's scared of him. Can't have it both ways. Unsecure observation. Okay. No locking mechanism. No safety feature. Nothing. Was it inside your pants? Yes. Okay. Climb over inside your pants. He was mounted on you. You were able to he, he was mounted on your upper chest? Or, I mean, at what point were you able to free your waist side to go ahead and pull out your weapon? When he, he was mounted on me, but he had pressure on my nose and my mouth suffocating me. And when he... I guess fear. I didn't want to confront him. The same reason I... You were afraid of him? Yes, ma'am. And, and do, do you say he ran? Yes. But then you get out of your car and run after him? I didn't run after him, no. I, I walked to find a street name or a street sign. And he had already run, cut out between the houses. So I knew that if I walked straight through that little sidewalk, I knew that that was my street, that I knew to retrieve a circle. But 
Again, he does not want to admit at all that he is following him or chasing him or profiling him. They ask him, what do you mean by Parliament's these assholes? People victimize the neighborhood. You don't know why? I don't know why on Halifax. I don't know. This is where he tells Investigator Serena doesn't sound like my voice. In terms of yells. Again, we covered this already, but I just wanted you to be able to read it too. Talking about the video camera. Oh, yeah, I wish it was there. He, knowing all along that he knew the video cameras in terms of whether they were working or not. And then when they ask him, how do you not know the street names? There's only three. Oh, I've got a bad memory. Always have to be an excuse. Or he just, they catch him in a lie and he explains it away or drives it. Then, then when they confront him, okay, hold on, this guy's getting right next to you. And all, oh, well, he didn't really surf the entire car. And he tries to explain why this individual, Trayvon Martin, is suspicious to him. And he's determined to get that address. It's not to go follow the guy. It's not to go follow the victim. It's to just get the address. Again, is it he just wants to catch the bad guy? The guy, the effing punk that gets away? Is that why he's saying that? Then we move on to July 20th. 2013, Mr. Hannity, he's giving him home runs, easy questions. Can't even get that right, because he tells one lie after another. Listen. Then we get to the issue where you said to, on the, on the 911 call, that he's running. He said that to the dispatch. Is there any chance in retrospect that you look back on that night and what happened? <laughs> Trying to maybe get into the mindset, because we also have learned that, that Trayvon was speaking with his girlfriend supposedly at the time, that maybe he was afraid of you, didn't know who you were. No. You don't think that, why do you think that he was running then? Um, well, I, I mean, maybe I said running, but he was more. You said he was running. Yes. Uh, he was like skipping, going away quickly, mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't running out of fear. You can tell the difference. He wasn't running. He wasn't, he wasn't actually running. You know, sir? Hannity just asked him a very simple question. Well, perhaps Trayvon Martin was scared of you since you're following him and he's running away from you. And so he realizes at that time, the defendant realizes, oh, that doesn't look good because that means I'm chasing him. That means Trayvon Martin is the one that's scared. That doesn't look good for me. So what does he say? Oh, he's skipping away. La, la, la. 
That's what he's claiming. And then buckling of the seatbelt. Here you opening the car door. Uh, and uh, this dispatch asked you at that point, and this became a, a very key moment that everyone in the media focused on. And the dispatcher asked you, Are you following him? And you said yes. Explain that. I meant that I was going in the same direction as him uh, to keep an eye on him so that I could tell the police where he was going. I didn't mean that I was actually pursuing him. I'm not following my daughter when she's out in the street and I'm scared something's going to happen. I'm just kind of going in the same direction that she's in. I thought he would take, uh, he, he had, uh, after he couldn't uh, hit my head on the concrete anymore, uh, he started to try to suffocate me. Um, and I continued to take, push his hands off of my mouth and my nose, particularly because it was excruciating having a broken nose and, and putting his weight on it. Uh, and that's the point in time when he started telling me to shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh, and why did he tell you to shut up? I don't know. Where's all that blood on Trayvon Martin's hands? So is he screaming or not? Because why would allegedly Trayvon Martin tell him to shut up if he's not screaming? When did he first see your gun? After we were on the ground, I shimmied uh, with him on top of me, and he made my jacket rise up, and he being on top of me uh, saw it on my right side. You've got to explain how this dark gun was concealed, which is concealed in his backside there, how all of a sudden it just became exposed. To get to the grass, yes sir, and how did you do that? I, uh, I guess you could say shimmy, I mean he was straddled on me uh, with his full weight and I would... At that point he's able to just kind of shimmy. Before he's, he's incapable of fighting back, as he claims the victim is bashing his head over and over, but at this point he gets, I guess, some strength and kind of shimmies. And then, what does he say? I feel that it was all God's plan, and for me to second guess it or judge it, um, is there anything you might do differently in retrospect that the time has passed a little bit? No, sir. No. comment about that. It speaks for itself. And again, you just heard it. So I'll just put it up there. Just other parts of the same interview. Mr. Osterman, his best friend, who wrote a book about this experience, about the defendant. And the victim had a slender build. The victim saw the defendant use the phone, followed him in his car first. Then he got out and didn't know the name of the street, tried to establish visual contact. 
within arm's reach, etc. Straddle means knees on the armpit and punching. I guess I might as well do what everybody else does. A lot of the warriors have done is using whatever we're going to call this. But you see what he is saying now? He's saying that armpits. How does he get the gun out? Armpits. How does he get the gun out? The truth does not lie. Earlier, he showed you, he showed the police where that gun was. So how did he manage to get out and get a perfect shot to the heart of a 17-year-old man? Teenager. He doesn't say he grabbed the holster. He grabbed the gun between the rear sight and the hammer. Now, these are two individuals. That is Mr. Osterman, who is a trained federal agent. And, uh, and he's trained to defend in terms of firearms, so they know what they're talking about. In fact, he suggested the perfect gun to get. He describes in detail what part of the gun the victim touched. No DNA. Only the defendant's DNA. I guess that got washed away too. Or is it another lie that he tells? Pivot at 90 degrees, etc. How did Mike try to get up again? At some point he goes, I, didn't, I wasn't sure whether he's dead, but then he holsters the gun. All right, let's talk about ill will in terms of one of the elements in terms of murder. And I'm going through this real quick. We spent years in trying and college trying to be police officers. Dreams of hunting fugitives. Those are some of the documents that were submitted that I don't know if you had an opportunity to, to read or review. Learns all about self-defense law, exactly what you have to say. Talking about here in terms of the fact that the stucco man has actually been involved in catching somebody, so he wants to get credit for it too. He doesn't want to be left out after all. He's the neighborhood coordinator. Of course, he wants to make Trayvon Martin a criminal. And he couldn't find the address. Recall how he's trying to mislead the police. Oh, see, there's no address in the back of these. Why? If he's not doing anything wrong in following an individual, why does he have to lie about it? Common sense. How many arms did Trayvon Martin need for punching, moving to the sidewalk, grabbing the head, smothering the mouth and nose, grabbing for the gun all at the same time? How many arms did he need? How much supposed activity can be packed into 70 seconds? That's what we're talking about. Assuming it, be, it began immediately after the Rachel uh, Trayvon phone call. Moves, what, 40 plus feet from where he claims it started? Man, somebody there's the flash. What he claims Trayvon Martin did to him, 25 plus punches, 25 slams. How's he alive? How is the defendant alive? Or is he exaggerating that to justify in his mind what he had to do? The wrist lock that he describes. How did he learn that technique? Perhaps it was at the mixed martial arts that he kind of went three days a week or two days a week, three hours, but he really didn't get much training. 
Think about the time frame here. The evidence agreed in terms of the physical evidence and the testimony. I will submit it does. In terms of the guilt of this defendant. You recall Mr. O'Brien, the HOA president there at RTL, what he talked about in terms of the procedures they're supposed to follow in terms of neighborhood watch, etc. You recall Ms. Thorville about, you know, follow people, call the police. Second degree murder. State's got to prove three elements. The victim, unfortunately, is dead. The death was caused by the criminal act of this defendant. And that there was an unlawful killing of Trayvon Martin by the act imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating a depraved mind without regard for human life. An act includes a series of related actions arising from and performed pursuant to a single design or purpose. I am not going to let this effing punk or these A's get away. He's a criminal. An act is imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating a depraved mind if it is an act of series of acts that a person of ordinary judgment would know is reasonably certain to kill or do serious bodily harm. I am following this guy. I'm armed, and I'm going to make sure he doesn't get away before the police get here. He's done from ill will, hatred, spite, or evil intent. Defense going to claim, oh, he didn't have any, he was just a little upset. Why is he having to utter those things? Why is he having to lie about the whole thing? If he wasn't doing anything wrong in following this victim, why does he have to lie about it? Why wouldn't he? Common sense. How many arms did Trayvon Martin need for punching, moving to the sidewalk, grabbing the head, smothering the mouth and nose, grabbing for the gun all at the same time? How many arms did he need? How much supposed activity can be packed into 70 seconds? That's what we're talking about. Assuming it, be, it began immediately after the Rachel uh, Trayvon phone call. Moves, what, 40 plus feet from where he claims it started? Man, somebody there's the flash. What he claims Trayvon Martin did to him, 25 plus punches, 25 slams. How's he alive? How is the defendant alive? Or is he exaggerating that to justify in his mind what he had to do? The wrist lock that he describes. How did he learn that technique? Perhaps it was at the mixed martial arts that he kind of went three days a week or two days a week, three hours, but he really didn't get much training. Think about the time frame here. The evidence agree in terms of the physical evidence and the testimony. I will submit it does in terms of the guilt of this defendant. You recall Mr. O'Brien, the HOA president there at RTL, what he talked about? in terms of the procedures they're supposed to follow, in terms of neighborhood watch, etc. You recall Ms. Thorville about, you know, follow people, call the police. Second degree murder. State's got to prove three elements. The victim, unfortunately, is dead. The death was caused by the criminal act of this defendant. And that there was an unlawful killing of Trayvon Martin by the act imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating a depraved mind without regard for human life. An act includes a series of related actions arising from and perform pursuant to a single design or purpose. I am not going to let this effing punk or these A's get away. He's a criminal. An act is imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating the brave mind of it is an act of serious of acts that a person of ordinary judgment would know is reasonably certain to kill or do serious bodily harm. I am following this guy. I'm armed, and I'm going to make sure he doesn't get away before the police get here. He's done from ill will, hatred, spite, or an evil intent. Defense is going to claim, oh, he didn't have any, he was just a little upset. 
Why is he having to utter those things? Why is he having to lie about the whole thing? If he wasn't doing anything wrong in following this victim, why does he have to lie about it? Why won't he admit that he went to follow him? Why does he have to come up with this, I didn't know the street, I didn't know the address? Doesn't that kind of show his mental state? It's of such a nature that the act itself indicates an indifference to human life. And in order to convict of second-degree murder, it's not necessary for the state to prove the defendant had an intent. It's not first-degree murder. We're not saying that he intended to go and kill him. Well, he does for a moment there. They speak volumes of his choices. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Jacob really didn't get to choose anything, did he? Or anyone. State is, uh, the instructions that the court will read to you will tell you in part that uh, the state has charged this defendant with second-degree murder. If you return a verdict of guilty, it should be for the highest offense, which has been proven, and there's a lesser included. And Hurricane Katrina wasn't just a thunder shower. In other words, your duty is if you find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of the highest crime, then if not, then you go to a lesser crime. Manslaughter, he committed an intentional act which resulted in the death and used a deadly weapon, excusable or uh, justifiable. You'll get those instructions, too, about no action or misfortune, etc. And the court's going to read the whole instruction to you. I just was... In terms of how you decide, and we talked briefly about that, it's to the evidence introduced into it alone, the case must be decided only upon the evidence and the instructions. What the lawyers say is not evidence, and you are not even to consider it as such. May not decide because you're biased or sympathy or angry at anyone or feel sorry for anyone. Why do we have such rules? What if? That's not a lack of evidence. There could always be more. That's not reasonable. You will not hear because a lawyer or a Hollywood screenwriter can imagine something more than could be done. You must find the evidence lacking. You know, we don't have a big animation of how it happened. Does, did anybody see it out there? The defendant told the police this is what happened. There were no eyewitnesses of the actual shooting. Doubt? And again, what's... what's Self-defense. This is what the defendant applied to Virginia. I'm down fugitives, and you'll see the, the letters. Again, the key point is that injuries really are not required if a person is legitimately in fear for their life. But why exaggerate them? Unless he's lying about the whole thing. Yeah, no DNA. Fingerprints also weren't on the gun. Blood wasn't there. Credibility, but should you believe the defendant? Think about this. What a coincidence. That makes sense. Think of the jacket as he's claiming he's going, he's going down an angle. Which way would it go? Would the gun be exposed? Or just the opposite? Think about this. Doesn't that speak the truth? What a coincidence. The shot, all of a sudden the yelling stops. You see where some of those injuries are? What, the... They pick up a sidewalk or they, they turn them upside down? Or is it just by scraping and rolling and fighting out there? They both were. I'm wrapping this up, believe it or not, and I thank you for your time and your patience.
I ask you to come back with a verdict that speaks the truth, a verdict that is just. You heard from many people in this case, and I've summarized some of them. There's a lot more, actually, that you heard. We know you paid close attention throughout all these proceedings. Some of the people you heard from were the parents of both. Unfortunately, the only photographs left of Trayvon Martin are those ME photographs. I mean, they've still got other photographs, and you saw some of them, the football, when he was younger days, but they can't take any more photos. And that's true because of the actions of one person, the man before you, the defendant, George Zimmerman. The man who is guilty of second-degree murder. Thank you. To Detective Mark Furman. This man is an unspeakable disgrace. He's been unmasked for the whole world for what he is, and that's hopefully positive. His misdeeds go far beyond this case because he bespeaks a culture that's not tolerable in America. But let's talk about this case. People worry about this is not the case of Mark Furman. Well, it's not the case of Mark Furman. Mark Furman is not in custody. He's not. That's the man who they're trying to put away with witnesses like this, a corrupt police officer who is a liar and a perjurer. You know, they were talking yesterday in their argument about, well, they said, well, Gee, would you, would you think he would like, commit a felony? What do you think it was when he was asked the questions by F. Lee Bailey? So well put. And we'll talk about that at the very end, about whether he'd ever used the N-word in 10 years. And he swore to tell the truth. He lied. And others knew he lied. But what I find particularly troubling is that they all knew about Mark Furman. And they weren't going to tell you. They tried to ease him back. Of all the witnesses who've testified in this case, how many were taken up to the grand jury room where they have this prep session? They ask him all these questions. Ms. Clark, and I went back and I read again her introduction of, Marsh, of, of Mark Furman. How many witnesses did they do that with? Well, they took him up there and they prepared him for this. Because you see, they knew about the Kathleen Bell letter. But she didn't fit. She didn't fit in what they wanted. They didn't want her. They'd rather malign her and believe this lying police officer. So they knew. Make no mistake about it. And so, when they try to prepare him, talk to him, and get him ready, and make him seem like a choir boy, make him come in here and raise his right hand as though he's going to tell you the truth and give you a true story here. He knew he was a liar and a racist. There's something about good versus evil. There's something about truth. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. You can always count on that. And so when Miss Clark so gently puts him on the stand and talks to him about, tell us how you feel about testifying today. Nervous? Okay. Reluctant? And all the things about this bad lady, Kathleen Bell. They brought it out the beginning. This bad Kathleen Bell saying all these mean things about you. Oh, and you don't, you don't know her even, do you? We asked you to look at her on the Larry King show, and you didn't recognize her. You don't know her. 
Oh, well, it's just terrible, all these bad things are happening to you, Detective Furman. You go back and you look at your notes of how the testimony was as they tried to bring him in here and pass him off. These things were all happening. The Kathleen Bell letter was in 85 and 86. Same time he went out to O.J. Simpson's house in 85. They want to talk so much about. What they're talking about is not even relevant. What we're talking about now is what happened in this case. And so, after having made all these denials and been adopted and accepted by the prosecution and put him on the stand, and you saw it. You saw it. It was sickening. And then, my colleague Lee Bailey, who can't be with us today, but God bless him wherever he is, did his cross-examination of this individual. And he asked some interesting questions. Some of you probably wonder, what do you wonder when he's asking that? He asked this man whether or not he'd ever met Kathleen Bell. Of course, he lied about that. Never met this woman. I don't recognize her. I don't know her. Gee, I don't know anything about that. Boy, and he sounded really convincing, didn't he? He says, quote, I do not recognize this woman as anybody I have ever met. That's what he says. Then Bailey says, have you used that word, referring to the N-word, in the past 10 years? Not that I recall, no. You mean if you call someone a nigger, you have forgotten it? I'm not sure I can answer the question the way it's phrased, sir, and they go on. He says, Bailey then pins him down. I want you to assume that perhaps at some time since 1985 or 86, you addressed a member of the African-American race as a nigger. Is it possible that you have forgotten that act on your part? Answer, no, it is not possible. Are you therefore saying that you have not used that word in the past 10 years, Detective Furman? Answer, yes, that is what I'm saying. Question, and you say under oath that you have not addressed any black person as a nigger or spoken about black people as niggers in the past 10 years? Detective Furman, that's what I'm saying, sir. So that anyone who comes to this court and quotes you as using that word in dealing with African Americans would be a liar. Would they not, Detective Furman? Yes, they would. All of them, correct? All of them. That's what he told you on growth in this case. Did he lie? Did he lie? Did he lie under oath? Did this key prosecution witness lie under oath? And I'm going to end this part and resume with him tomorrow morning. Did he lie? And when they try to tell you he's not important, let's remember this man. This is the man who was off this case shortly after 2 o'clock in the morning, right after he got on it. This is the man who didn't want to be off this case. This is the man when they're ringing the doorbell at Ashford who goes for a walk. And he describes how he's strolling. Let me quote him for you. Here's what he says. I was just strolling along, looking at the house. Maybe I could see some movement inside. I was just walking while the other three detectives were down there. And that's when he walks down. And he's the one who says, the Bronco was parked askew. And he sees some spot on the door. He makes all of the discoveries. It's got to be the big man. Because he's headed in for OJ because of his views since 85. This is the man. He's the guy who climbs over the fence. He's the guy 
who goes in and talks to Cato Kalin while the other detectives are talking to the family. He's the guy who's showing a shining a light in Cato Kalin's eyes. He's the guy looking at shoes, looking for suspects. He's the guy who's doing these things. He's the guy who says, I don't tell anybody about the thumps on the wall. He's the guy who's off this case, who's supposedly there to help this man, our client, O.J. Simpson, who then goes out all by himself. All by himself. Now, if he's worried about bodies or suspects or whatever, doesn't even take out his gun. He goes around the side of the house, and lo and behold, he claims he finds this glove. And he says the glove is still moist and sticky. Now, under their theory, at 1040, 10.45, that glove is dropped. How many hours is that? It's now after 6 o'clock. So what is that, seven and a half hours? It's a testimony about drying time around here. There's no dew point that night. Why would it be moist and sticky? Unless he brought it over there and planted it there to try to make this case. And there is a Caucasian hair on that glove. This man cannot be trusted. He is central to the prosecution. And for them to say he's not important is untrue. And you will not fall for it. Because it's guardians of justice here. We can't let it happen. See you tomorrow. Thank you. All right. Scott, could you have taken down this When we concluded last night, ladies and gentlemen, we had discussed a number of things, and I'm sure you have them very much in mind. To summarize some of the things that we talked about and put it in perspective, we talked about a police department who from the very beginning was more interested in themselves and their image, and they'd carried through. We talked about socks that appeared all of a sudden that weren't there, socks where evidence was planted on them. We talked about police officers who lie with impunity, where the oath doesn't mean anything to them. We talked about messengers where you couldn't trust the message. We talked about gloves that didn't fit, a knit cap that wouldn't make any difference, a prosecution scenario that is unbelievable and unreasonable. In short, we talked about reasonable doubt. We talked about something that's made this country great, that you can be accused in this country of a crime. But that's just an accusation. And when you enter a not guilty plea, since the beginning of the time of this country, since the time of the Magna Carta. That sets the forces in motion, and you have a trial. That's what this has been about. That's why we love what we do. An opportunity to come before people from the community, the consciences of the community. You are the consciences of this community. You set the standards. You tell us what's right and wrong. You set the standards. You use your common sense to do that. Your verdict goes far beyond these doors of this courtroom. As Mr. Darden said, the whole world is watching and waiting for your decision in this case. 
That's not to put any pressure on you. Just tell you what's really happening out there. So we talked about all those things. Hopefully in a logical way. Hopefully something I said made some sense to you. Hopefully as an advocate, you know my zeal. You know the passion I feel for this. We've all got time invested in this case. But it's just not about winning. It's about what's right. It's about a man's life at stake here. So in Voidar, you promised to take the time that was necessary, and you've more than done that. Remember, I asked you, though, that when you got down to the end of the case, when you kept all your promises about coming here every day and taking these notes and paying attention and, you know, listening to us drone on and on and on, that pretty soon it would be in your hands. And then you couldn't just rush through that, could you? Now, we tried to make it a little more simple with regard to the issues, but still we're going to have 12 minds coming together, 12 open minds, 12 unbiased minds to come together on these issues, and you will give it, I'm sure, the importance to which it's entitled. Please don't compromise your principles or your consciences in rendering this decision. Don't, don't rush to judgment. Don't compound what they've already done in this case. Don't rush to judgment. Have a judgment that is well thought out, one that you can believe in, the morning after this verdict, I want you to place yourself the day after you render the verdict. When you get up and you look in the mirror and you're free, you're no longer sequestered. You probably look for each other, but you know, you'll, you'll be happy to be home again. But what's important is, look in that mirror and say, have I been true to my oath? Did I do the right thing? Was I naive? Was I timid? Or was I courageous? Did I believe in the Constitution? Did I believe in justice? Did I do my part for integrity and honesty? That's the mission you're on in this journey toward justice. And now, now let's go back to where we were when we broke last night. We had started talking about the messengers in this case. We talked briefly about Van Etter and about all of his big lies. <clears throat> his lies become very important because he's the co-lead investigator in this case. From the very beginning, he was lying to you. It was interesting. And I thought about this last night after I left you. Just about 10 days ago, a week or 10 days ago, Van Etter took that stand again and you saw him. You had a chance to again observe his demeanor. You're smart. You know when somebody's lying and not telling you the truth. I mean, I don't have to go into that. You, you know, you don't need the jury instruction. You've got this visceral reaction. You've got your experiences in life, and, and you know somebody who's lying. But, you know, he said something really interesting. It was really preposterous when you think about it. He said, Mr. Shapiro, Mr. O.J. Simpson was no more a suspect than you were. Now, now who in here believed that? Did he really think he's going to come back in here and we we're going to believe that, that O.J. Simpson was no more a suspect than Robert Shapiro? That's what he told you. Big lies. You can't trust him. 
You can't believe anything that he says because it goes to the core of this case. When you're lying at the beginning, you'll be lying at the end. The book of Luke talks about that. It talks about if you're untruthful in small things, you should be disbelieved in big things. There's no question about that. We've known that all along. So this man with his big lies and then we have Furman coming right on the heels and the two of them need to be paired together because they are twins of deception. Furman and Van Adder, twins of deception who bring you a message that you cannot trust, that you cannot trust. Let's continue on where we left off then with this man, Furman, who says some very interesting thing in the course of his testimony. And as we talked about Van Adder's big lies, we have Furman's big lies. The Van Adder, the man who carried the blood. Furman, the man who found the glove. You recall that he was asked, because I read you yesterday briefly, the question well phrased by Lee Bailey, have you ever used this N-word in 10 years? It went right back to 85. And he picked that 85 date, you know why? Because of the Kathleen Bell letter, just like they knew about it. Picked that date. They knew he was lying. Honed in on him. You know, liars can be tricky. And so he was, at that point, trying to pin it down for you. Ten years. 85 to 95. This was like in February of this year. Says also he never met Kathleen Bell, this Marine Center. Tells you that Rokar, the photographer, took this photograph after 7 o'clock in the morning. I remember that. Look back through your notes. And the reason he tells you that because he wants that photograph of him pointing at the glove taken after he supposedly finds the glove at Rockingham. Now you may not have caught that right at the beginning when this was happening. He says he took the photograph at Rockingham after 7 o'clock a.m. after they returned from Rockingham. You know, they all go over to Bundy after 5 o'clock. Strike that. At Bundy, they all go over to Rockingham at 5 o'clock from 5 to 7. And so it becomes very, very important as we look at this photograph in a few minutes. Rogar then comes here near the end of the case. There's been nobody called to refute him in rebuttal. and says, these photographs on this contact sheet are all taken while it's dark. He says he could tell the difference in a photograph taken an hour and a half before sunrise, 541, 542, and an hour and a half afterwards. So then why then is this big liar in the crime scene with access to the glove and the hat? Why is he down there pointing at this glove where he's walking and all in the blood and everything when he wants you to believe it's 7 o'clock? Now we know it's not 7 o'clock. See that photograph up there? That is Mark Furman pointing. You see the envelope pointing under this neatly arranged cap and glove supposedly just happened to fall right under that bush in that fashion. That's what you're asked to believe. There he is pointing at it. Well now, let me tell you why this is important. You recognize Furman. Personification of evil. What are you doing that? He's trying to tell you this is some important piece of evidence here. And I just came back from Rockingham. This matches the glove found over there. That's what he tells you. But he's lying again. 
He's lying, and that's why he's central to this case, because he hadn't even been to Rockingham at that point. And he's tracking in that blood at that point. And that becomes very important, because you remember he slips up and says, in the Bronco at some point. Did he get in that Bronco? Did he put a bloody footprint in that Bronco? Are his shoes size 12? Talks about in the Bronco. He talks about them. Remember, there's a question he was asked about gloves, and Lee Bailey asked him about, well, he says, well, he's talking about gloves, and he says, them. Never explained that. He says, them, them, does that mean two gloves? He said, I saw them. Is that two gloves? Why would you say them? He's intelligent enough to come and lie to you. So, that picture, that photograph there, that seals their doom. That seals their doom. This man, who in 85, in his mind, started this. This man, who's asked to go over and help O.J. Simpson to notify him and take care of the kids. This man, this perjurer, this racist, this genocidal racist, this is the man. And he says then, inferentially he didn't plant the glove, but now we know about these photographs when they were taken. And you look, you'll have that contact sheet, and you'll see the photograph of Mr. Cole Brown Simpson. And the last two on this roll, taken at nighttime with the flash at 4.30 or so in the morning. Why else is this important? Because they're going to tell you, well, he didn't have an opportunity to get the glove or get access to anything. Remember, they brought, brought all these police officers in here, including Lieutenant Spangler, to say, well, you know, we were just watching Furman the whole time. First of all, you knew that was a lie at the beginning. Why would anybody be necessarily watching him? They're always covering for him anyway. But we knew that wasn't true because when Rokar got there, shortly after 3 o'clock, Rokar goes to that back alley and he sees Risky, who's back there then. Remember, Rokar sees Risky in the back alley. Rokar doesn't even see Furman for like a half hour after he gets there, he says. Then all of a sudden, Furman shows up. Where has he been? What's he been doing? And then Risky is out in the front of Bundy there. And Risky testifies about the taking of this photograph. He wants to place the time later, but he said it's before the sun comes up, before daylight. That has to be, because we've stipulated to it, before 541. So inadvertently, he corroborates Rokar. But Rokar knows, because he took these photographs. Why then, ladies and gentlemen, is he pointing at this glove? when he hasn't even been over there. Why then would they try to tell you he doesn't have time at Bundy when he's by himself for this period of time? He's not with any Spangley, he's walking around by himself. Why then is he walking in that crime scene and why does he lie to you and said he didn't have access to the crime scene? Now these are the facts. These are the facts, I haven't made them up. This is what you heard in this case. This is what we've proven. Some of it came in late, some of it came in early. But our job here is to piece this together so that you can then see this. So when he refers to the gloves as them, that's never been cleared up for you, and it can't. It's a Freudian slip. When he talks about in the Bronco, and there was a dispute, well, did he really say that? Remember, the tape was played, the preliminary hearing, and his voice was heard saying, in the Bronco. You can see all these things. He's strolling down to Rockingham. The big man, figuring a way to do this, to carry out this plan, this thought he has in his mind since 1985 to make the big score. And so Rokar severely impeaches Furman 
about these photographs. And once again, these photographs speak a thousand words. Concluding about Risky, he said on cross-examination that the photograph pointing at the glove was taken at least 40 minutes before daylight. The sun rose at 5.41, maybe a little bit late, but it was before daylight. And so we know that. That's now clear. Why did they then all try to cover for this man, Furman? Why would this man, who is not only Los Angeles' worst nightmare, but America's worst nightmare, why would they all turn their heads and try to cover for him? Why would you do that if you're sworn to uphold the law? There is something about corruption. There's something about a rotten apple that will ultimately infect the entire barrel. Because if the others don't have the courage that we've asked you to have in this case, people sit silently by. We live in a society where many people are apathetic. They don't want to get involved. And that's why all of us, to a person in this courtroom, have thanked you from the bottom of our hearts. Because you know what? You haven't been apathetic. You're the ones who made a commitment, a commitment toward justice. And it's a painful commitment, but you gotta see it through. Your commitment, your courage is much greater than these police officers. This man could have been off the force long ago if they'd done their job, but they didn't do their job. People looked the other way. People didn't have the courage. One of the things that's made this country so great is people's willingness to stand up and say, that's wrong. I'm not going to be part of it. I'm not going to be part of the cover-up. That's what I'm asking you to do. Stop this cover-up. Stop this cover-up. If you don't stop it, then who? You think the police department is going to stop it? You think the DA's office is going to stop it? Do you think we can stop it by ourselves? It has to be stopped by you. And you know, they talked about Furman. They talked about him in derisive tones now. And that's very fashionable now, isn't it? Everybody wants to beat up on Furman. The favorite whipping boy in America. I tell you, I don't take any delight in that. Because you know, before this trial started, if you grow up in this country, you know there are Furmans out there. You learn early on in your life that you're not going to be naive. That you love your country, but you know it's not perfect. So you understand that. So it's no surprise to me, but I don't take any pride in it. But for some of you, you're finding out the other side of life. You're finding out that's why this case is so instructive. You're finding out about the other side of life. The things aren't always as they seem. It's not just rhetoric. It's the actions of people. It's the lack of courage and the lack of integrity at high places. That's what we're talking about here. Credibility doesn't attach to a title. Our position, it attaches to the person. So the person who may have a job where he makes $2 an hour can have more integrity than the highest person. It's 
something from within. It's in your heart. It's what the Lord has put there. That's what we're talking about in this case. And so why don't they speak out? Why do they take him to their breast? Compare how our prosecutors treat Furman as opposed to Cato Kalin. Look at how they treated Mark Partridge as opposed to Cato Kalin. Look at how they embraced him. And now they want to distance themselves. These same people say, oh, he's not important. But the Rokar photograph puts the lie to that. He is very important. And what becomes so important when we talk about these two twin demons of evil, Pan Outer and Furman, is the jury instruction, which you know about now. And it says essentially that a witness willfully false. I think Mr. Douglas is going to put that up for us. A witness willfully false in one material part of his or her testimony is to be distrusted in others. You may reject the whole testimony of a witness who willfully has testified falsely to a material point unless from all the evidence you believe the probability of truth favors his or her testimony in other particulars. Why is this instruction so important? We've got the bullet points up there. First of all, both prosecutors have now agreed that we have convinced them, beyond a reasonable doubt, by the way, that he's a lying, perjuring, genocidal racist. And he's testified willfully false in this case on a number of scores. That's what his big lies tell you. And when you go back in the jury room, some of you may want to say that, well, gee, you know, boys will be boys. Uh, this is just like police talk. This is the way they talk. That's not acceptable as the consciences of this community. If you adopt that attitude, that's why we have this. Because nobody has had the courage to say it's wrong. You are empowered to say we're not going to take that anymore. I'm sure you'll do the right thing about that. So that what you then, it seems we must do, is you have the authority. You may reject the whole testimony. You can then wipe out everything that Furman told you, including the glove and all the things he recovered in the glove. That's why they're so worried. That's why when people say Furman is not central, they're wearing blinders. They've lost their objectivity. They don't understand what they're talking about. It's embarrassing for learned people to say that. But they're entitled to their opinions, but we're going to speak the truth in a courtroom. You are supposed to speak the truth. A witness who walks through those doors, who raises his or her hand, swears to tell the truth. You've heard lie after lie after lie that's been exposed. And when a witness lies in a material part of his testimony, you can wipe out all of his testimony as a judge of the facts. That's your decision again. Nobody can tell you about that unless you feel that the greater probability of truth lies in something else they said. Wipe it out. This applies not only to Furman, 
it'll fly us to Van Adder, and then you see what trouble that case is in. Because they lied to get in there to do these things. When Van Adder carries that blood, they can't explain to you why he did that. Because they were setting this man up. And that glove, anybody among you think that glove was just sitting there, just placed there, moist and sticky after six and a half hours. The testimony is it would be dried in three or four hours, according to McDonald. We're not naive. You understand? There's no blood on anything else. There's no blood trail. There's no hair and fiber. And you get the ridiculous explanation that Mr. Seps was running into an air conditioning on his own property. Anybody else? Uh, I saw Christopher Darden move around. And perhaps he's ready to resume. Witness is willfully false. One material part distrusted in evidence. These two form basically the cornerstone of the prosecution's case. Now, you know, people talk all the time, well, you know, you're being conspiratorial and whatever. Gee, why would all these police officers set up O.J. Simpson? Why would they do that? I'll answer that question for you. They believed he was guilty. They wanted to win. They didn't want to lose another big case. That's why. They believed he was guilty. These actions rose from what their belief was. But they can't make that judgment. The prosecutors can't make that judgment. Nobody but you can make that judgment. So when they take the law into their own hands, they become worse than the people who break the law because they are the protectors of the law. Who then polices the police? You police the police. You police them by your verdict. You're the ones who send the message. Nobody else is going to do it in this society. They don't have the courage. Nobody has the courage. You have a bunch of people running around with no courage to do what is right. Except individual citizens. You're the ones in war. You're the ones who are on the front line. These people set policies. These people talk all this stuff. You implement it. You're the people. You're what makes America so great. Don't you forget it. And so, understand how this happened. It's part of a culture of getting away with things. It's part of a culture looking the other way. Of we determine the rules as we go along. Nobody's going to question us. We're the LAPD. And so you take these two twins of deception. And if, as you can, under this law, wipe out their testimony, the prosecutors realize their case then is in serious trouble. From risky to bushy. They came together in this case because they want to win. But it's not about them winning. It's about justice being done. They'll have other cases. This is this man's one life that's entrusted, or will be soon, to you. So when we talked about this evidence being compromised, contaminated, 
and corrupted? Some people didn't believe that. Have we proved that? Have we proved that it was compromised, contaminated, and corrupted? And yes, even something more sinister? I think you'll agree we did. But there's something else about this man, Furman, that I have to say before I'm going to terminate this part of my opening argument and relinquish the floor to my learned colleague, Mr. Barry Sheck. It's something that Furman said, and I'm going to ask Mr. Douglas and Mr. Harris to put up that Kathleen Bell letter. You know, it's one thing, and I dare say that most of you, when you heard Furman say he hadn't used the N-word, that you probably thought, well, he's lying. We know that's not true. That's just part of it, and that's what the prosecutors want to just talk about, that part of it. It's not the part that bothers us on the defense. I live in America. I understand. I know about slights every day of my life. But I want to tell you about what is troubling, what is frightening, what is chilling about that Kathleen Bell letter. Let's see if we can see part of it. And I think you will agree. So I want to put the focus back where it belongs on this letter and its application to this case. You'll recall that God is good, and he always brings you a way to see light when there's a lot of darkness around. And just through chance, this lady had tried to reach Shapiro's office, couldn't reach it. And in July of 1994, she sent this fax to my office, and my good, loyal, and wonderful staff got that letter to me early on. And this is one you just couldn't pass up get a lot of letters, but you couldn't pass this one up because she says some interesting things. And she wasn't a fan of O.J. Simpson. So what did she say? I'm writing to you in regards to a story I saw on the news last night. I thought it ridiculous that the Simpson defense team would even suggest that there might be racial motivation involved in the trial against Mr. Simpson. Yes, there are a lot of people out there who thought that at that time. And you know, you, you can't fault people for being naive. But once they know, if they continue to be naive, then you can fault them. That's what it is, and that's why this case is important. Don't ever say again in this county or in this country that you don't know things like this exist. Don't pretend to be naive anymore. Don't turn your heads. Stand up. Show some integrity. And so I then glanced up at the television and was quite shocked to see that Officer Furman was a man that I had the misfortune of meeting. You may have received a message from your answering service last night that I called to say that Mr. Furman may be more of a racist than you could even imagine. I doubt that, but at any rate, it was something that got my attention. Between 1985 and 1986, I worked as a real estate agent in Redondo Beach for Century 21 Bob Mayher Realty. Now out of business at the time, my office was located above a marine recruiting center off of Pacific Coast Highway. On occasion, I would stop in to say hello to the two Marines working there. I saw Mr. Furman there a couple of times. I remember him distinctly because of his height and build. You know, he's tall. 
While speaking to the man, I learned that Mr. Furman was a police officer in Westwood. Isn't that interesting? Just exactly the place where Laura McKinney met him. And I don't know if he was telling the truth, but he said that he'd been in the Special Division of the Marines. I don't know how the subject was raised. But Officer Furman said that when he sees a nigger, as he called it, driving with a white woman, he would pull them over. I ask, would if he didn't have a reason? And he said that he would find one. I looked at the two Marines to see if they knew he was joking. But it became obvious to me that he was very serious. Now let me just stop at this point. Let's back it up a minute, Mr. Harris. Pull it back down, please. If he sees an African-American with a white woman, he would stop them. If he didn't have a reason, he'd find one or make up one. This man will lie to set you up. That's what he's saying there. He will do anything to set you up because of the hatred he has in his heart. A racist is somebody who has power over you, who can do something to you. People could have views, they keep them to themselves. But when they have power over you, that's when racism becomes insidious. That's what we're talking about here. He has power. A police officer in the street, a patrol officer, is the single most powerful figure in the criminal justice system. He can take your life. Unlike the Supreme Court, you don't have to go through all these appeals. He can do it right there and justify it. And that's why, that's why this has to be rooted out in the LAPD and every place else. Make up a reason. Because he made a judgment. That's what happened in this case. They made a judgment. Everything else after that was going to point toward O.J. Simpson. They didn't want to look at anybody else. Mr. Darden asked, who did this crime? That's their job as the police. We've been hampered. They turned down our office for help. But that's the prosecution's job. The judge says, we don't have that job. The law says that. We'd love to help do that. Who do you think wants to find these murderers more than Mr. Simpson? But that's not our job. It's their job. And when they don't talk to anybody else, when they rush to judgment in their obsession to win, that's why this became a problem. This man had the power to carry out his racist views. And that's what's so troubling. Let's move on. Making up a reason. That's troubling. That's frightening. That's chilling. But if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, the thing that really gets you, is she goes on to say, Officer Furman went on to say, that he would like nothing more than to see all niggers gathered together and killed. He said something about burning, burning them or bombing them. I was too shaken to remember the exact words he used. However, I do remember that what he said was probably the most horrible thing I'd ever heard someone say what 
frightened me even more was that he was a police officer sworn to uphold the law. And now we have it. There was another man not too long ago in the world who had those same views, who wanted to burn people, who had racist views and ultimately had power over people in his country. People didn't care. People said he's just crazy, he's just a half-baked painter. They didn't do anything about it. This man, this scourge became one of the worst people in the history of this world, Adolf Hitler. Because people didn't care, didn't try to stop him. He had the power over his racism and his anti-religionism. Nobody wanted to stop him and it ended up in World War II. The conduct of this man. And so, Furman, Furman, was to take all black people now and burn them, a bomb. That's genocidal racism. Is that ethnic purity? What is that? What is that? We're paying this man's salary to espouse these views? You think he only told Kathleen Bell, whom he just had met? You think he talked to his partners about it? You think his commanders knew about it? You think everybody knew about it and turned their heads? Nobody did anything about it? Things happen for a reason in your life. Maybe this is one of the reasons we're all gathered together here this day. One year and two days after we met. Maybe there's a reason for your purpose. Maybe this is why you were selected. There's something in your background, in your character, that helps you understand this is wrong. Maybe you're the right people at the right time, at the right place, to say no more. We're not going to have this. This is wrong. What they've done to our client is wrong. This man, O.J. Simpson, is entitled to an acquittal. You cannot believe these people. You can't trust the message. You can't trust the messengers. It is frightening. It is quite frankly frightening. And it's not enough for the prosecutors now to stand up and say, oh, let's just back off. The point I was trying to make, they didn't understand that it's not just using the N-word. Forget that. We knew he was lying about that. Forget that. It's about the lengths to which he would go to get somebody black and also white if they associated with black. That's pretty frightening. It's not just... African Americans, it's white people who would associate, ordain to go out with a black man or marry one. You're free in America to love whomever you want. So it infects all of us, doesn't it? This one rotten apple. And yet they cover for it. Yet they cover for it. And so, how do we do it and what do we do with regard to this man? Well, we call some witnesses. And you recall these witnesses. And before I talk about these witnesses just briefly, and I'm going to include my remarks with regard to them, I indicated to you that by the nature of this case, uh, I'm going to pass the baton to Mr. Bereshek. You've been great from the standpoint of listening and watching, and I stayed longer than I planned to, but I hope you agree that some of these things were important. And I'll get one more time to conclude with the, some concluding remarks after Mr. Sheck finishes. The good news is that Mr. Sheck and I will both hopefully finish today and turn it back over to Ms. Clark. So in a day or so, you're going to get this case. You get have to hear lawyers talk anymore. It'll be time to hear you talk. Time to hear you speak out. 
and I'll be happy. I'll, I'll relax tonight knowing that soon it's going to be in your hands. We're real comfortable about that, all of us, and you should know that. So please give Mr. Sheck the attention to which you've given me and understand that all parts of this case are very important. It all ties together because it's all of the evidence in this case went through that LAPD and that black hole over there, that cesspool of contamination, and you listen to him about what he has to say in that regard. Mr. Darden said that in a textbook fashion, we had impeached Mr. Furman. Well, we thank him for that. We take no pride in that, but that's what did happen. In addition to calling Kathleen Bell where you saw her, and she's not the kind of lady that, you know, looking at it, you probably remember her. Unless, you know, it'd be very interesting. You know he's lying about not knowing her. But this man used these words and these racial epithets so much, he probably can't remember who he said it to. He says to everybody, whoever came in contact with him, on tape. Can you imagine the gall about that? That you would have these racist views, and yet you would put it on tape. Thank God he put it on tape. And so Kathleen Bell came in here and told you the same things in, that, in those letters. You saw her. You observed her. You know she told us the truth. They couldn't mess with her because now we had those tapes. And then there was Natalie Singer. Barely knew this man. He was dating her roommate. This man is an indiscriminate racist. He talked so bad that she didn't want him back in the house. What does he say to her? In her presence, the only good nigga is a dead nigga. Now that, probably all heard that expression sometime in your, in your background or somewhere, or heard somebody say that, and that's tremendously offensive. He just says it in the presence of his partner's girlfriend, like they're gonna go on a date. I mean, I hope that in the homes throughout this country, people, aren't acting like this. This happened to come to light, but I'd be pretty frightened if I thought that the majority of people in this country acted like this behind closed doors or whatever, because what you do in the dark is gonna come to the light. Remember that, that's what this case is about. It came to the light, and just in time to get it to you. So you saw her on the stand, you saw her graphically. Talk about that. Are you doubting anybody's mind? He's telling you the truth? Any one of you thinks she's not telling you the truth? And then finally we had Roderick Hodge in this series of witnesses and Roderick Hodge, intelligent young man, understood something about his rights too. Because when, after this run-in with Furman and his partner, when he's in the back of the police car, Furman turns around and says to him words that I want you to remember in this case. I told you I'd get you nigger. That's what he tells Roderick Hodge. Why is that important? Because from 1985, when he went on that one call involving the Mercedes, that was this man's mindset vis-a-vis O.J. Simpson. I'm going to get that guy. And in 89, when he wrote that report, indelibly impressed on his mind, 
and in 94, he had his chance. Still in West Los Angeles, he had his chance. So Hodge is important because you can espouse all these epithets and talk theoretically about your racism, but when it's directed toward a human being. And I said to him, Mr. Hodge, tell this jury how that made you feel. He said it made me feel angry and upset and frustrated. It was dehumanizing in a free society. But this man, Furman, does it with impunity. And his partner sat there and heard it and didn't report it. There's something rotten about this kind of conduct. And it's gone on too long. And so, that's why he's important. But the capper was finding those tapes, something that you could hear, lest there be any doubt in anybody's mind. Laura McKinney came in here, and I can imagine the frustration of the prosecutors. They've had the glove demonstration. They've seen all these other things go wrong. And now they got to face these tapes. And they didn't know how to handle her. Quite frankly, she was a reluctant witness. You know that. Mr. Darden asked her those questions where he became negative with her. She's very smart. Unlike some others who didn't know how to handle it, she says, why are we having this negative conversation? Why are you acting and treating me like this? I didn't try to stop him about cover-ups and things. Why are you asking me these questions? I'm the one who's here on the subpoena. Why are you treating me like this? Now, you know it's true because they've heard the tapes. Why are you messing with this lady? You just get so wrapped up in what you're doing, I guess. Why are they messing with this lady? We owe a debt of gratitude to this lady. That ultimately and finally she came forward. And she tells us that this man, over the time of these interviews, uses the N-word 42 times, is what she says. In the so-called Furman tapes. And you, of course, had an opportunity to listen to this man and espouse this evil, this personification of evil. And so I'm going to ask Mr. Harris to play Exhibit 1368 one more time. There was a transcript. This was not on tape, the tape had been erased, where he said, we have no niggers where I grew up. 